Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. I am your host, Elliot Hassoon, and today I am a very sick Elliot Hassoon. So my apologies if you can hear any croakiness in my voice or any sniffs throughout today's episode. But today I have the absolute honor of bringing you the episode I recently recorded with David Ganderman. David Ganderman is a spiritual teacher, author, and coach. He's the founder of the Meditation School, which is an online meditation platform. He's the host of three podcasts. I thought just having one was hard enough, which called Meditation School, Energy Matters, and my favorite, the Grounded Sleep Podcast. I've been listening to David's meditations for well over a year now, and I continue to return day after day. His style of meditations are incredibly insightful and thought-provoking, but what I love the most is the way that he effortlessly integrates humor into a practice that's actually seemingly more serious. And he does a great job of showing his humorous side throughout this podcast. And in today's podcast, we go through how you can start to lean into your intuition more, how we can fully integrate both the masculine and the feminine energy, and whether our ego really is the enemy along with so much more. So aside from being a little bit more enlightened at the end of this episode, you'll realize that David doesn't take himself too seriously at all, so you can expect a lot of laughs along the way. So without further ado, David Gandelman. David Gandelman, welcome to the show. How are you today? Uh, Elliot, it's a pleasure to be here, my friend. Thanks for having me. No, the pleasure is truly mine. I've been talking about this podcast all week to the guys on Instagram stories, telling them how excited I am about talking to you and how it's a personal, yeah, a personal excitement for me just due to the fact that I've been listening to your content for so long. So I'm looking forward to introducing my listeners to you today. So to get started, I usually ask about people's backstories, which I will go into in just a second. But I think a relevant way for us to start today is would you mind taking myself and listeners through a mini meditation first? And then maybe giving us your current worst, best joke. I think that'd be a great way to start. <laughs> yeah, I, I could do both. Let's start with the joke. Whenever I teach meditation, I, I start my classes with jokes. I actually have a list of jokes I bring to each class that I think will be relevant. I loosen us up and then I go. we go into meditation. And it, it's because people are so serious. And when I used to teach meditation in person before COVID, I was living in Los Angeles and 
everybody in the room, I would say, all right, let's, let's meditate. And they would stiffen up like Buddha statues, you know, they would hold their bodies hostage. Like I was judging them based on how still they were. It's not comfortable meditating that way. It does, And then when you're done, it doesn't actually help because now you're going back to being who you are. So I think it's better we kind of slide in and out of meditation very naturally. So if you slouch, slouch, you know, whatever. If you have a frown on your face, frown, <laughs> whatever, you know, it's all good. <laughs> a joke that I love from Jerry Seinfeld, they asked Jerry Seinfeld what his favorite joke of all time was. And he said, the worst moment of an adult human being's life is when the toilet is about to overflow and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and I, I've had that happen to me and I know that feeling. And it's just that, <laughs> oh, fuck moment. And uh, I really appreciated that. So, you know, maybe you feel that way before you go to meditate your whole life. It's about to overflow. <laughs> That's so very relevant. I like that. <laughs> yeah. The energy of overwhelm, uh, I think, is very common to experience. And then we don't meditate because we're overwhelmed. And we think if we get a bunch of tasks done, then kind of the water level will come down. It'll, you know, and we could breathe again. But actually, you want to, it's kind of the opposite. If you meditate, something weird happens, like energetically, it's like you create more space, uh, energetic space, mental space, emotional space. And then that creates more time. I don't know how to, it's like magic. Something just like opens everything up. You think more clearly and creatively. And it's, you maybe you don't need as much time as you think. You might need clarity. And so when you feel overwhelmed, that's a good time to meditate. And so if you're listening, you don't even have to close your eyes if you're driving or whatever. Just do a short minute meditation and just get you here. Uh, if you want, you can close your eyes. And the way I like to start, especially if you're working on creating a morning routine, is when you close your eyes, you could start by checking the energetic weather. I, when I wake up, sometimes I'll ask Alexa, hey, what's the weather like today? Right? So ask yourself, what's the weather like inside of my energetic kind of atmosphere in, in your emotional body, mental body? So is it a cloudy day? Is it rainy? Is there a storm brewing? Or is it still and sunny. So step one, just check the energetic weather inside yourself. I love starting this way. And the key in meditation is to be honest. It's not what you want the weather to be, just what you notice it is. All right, it's a little, the waters are a little rough, not crazy, but there's some movement here. And then beyond that, you might start to notice some feelings. Maybe there's some anxiety, some tension some excitement, some worry, some uncertainty, could be joy. So then you just take note of like the deeper layer of how you feel, what the energy is like. And then the third step is what is the purpose? What's the movement of energy today for you? What is the energetic theme? Is today about growth? Is it about healing? Is it about rest? Is it about creativity or love? Every day has a couple of themes. They kind of weave through the day, almost like patterns, like in a quilt or blanket. You know, you see these patterns. So there's probably some themes that are weaving through the day today. And it's up to you. Are you going to be in resistance to those themes and fight them? Or kind of like a river, are you going to flow down and move with life and embrace them? So if you're in pain, maybe the day is about healing. 
If you're exhausted, maybe it's about rest. If you're confused, maybe it's about clarity. If you're excited, maybe it's about sharing. Or you're inspired, maybe it's about creativity. So just check in. What's the theme of your day? And if it's the end of your day, if you're listening to this at night, maybe it's about being reflective and integrating. So just start there. So we check the weather. We check our feelings and the energy. And then we check the theme of the day. And just embrace it. And then before you come out of meditation, just embrace the feeling and almost the like invisible purpose that courses through your life. It's up to you to decide to accept it and take it on. Or you can look at your purpose and then just kind of walk away, which actually a lot of people do because they're busy or distracted. As the teacher I know says, there's, we have intention deficit disorder. We don't have enough attention to check out what our intention is. And so intention, we're going in. So check that intention and start to embrace it and see if the rest of the day or evening, wherever you are, whenever you are, if you can embrace that theme and own it. Let it pour through your pores and come out through your eyes and through your words and your actions and how you treat yourself and how you treat others because they have their own themes. You might come across someone today, their theme is healing and your theme is compassion and here you are. So the world's not just about you. So embrace a bigger circle of beings, recognize your role to play in that and see if you can enjoy life. Let's take a deep breath. Sigh out all the problems of the world. (laughs) The toilet is no longer overflowing. You can open your eyes and stretch if your eyes were closed. (laughs) And if Jerry Seinfeld, you're listening. Awesome. Jerry, if you're listening, thanks for the joke. Sorry, I stole it. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's a frequent listener on the podcast. So um, yeah, I'm sure he'll receive that. (laughs) Nah, he's he's a TM meditator. He's got a different style. (laughs) Yeah, we'll tap into that a lot more later today and all the different meditation styles. But before we do get into that, I need to ask you, because it is fundamental to what you do when you just mentioned meditation and even my visualization of meditation right now, it does seem quite stiff. It does seem quite serious. It does seem quite upright and almost rigid. And you are someone who integrates humor effortlessly into your meditations. And it's not a common practice. I don't think I've come across another practitioner who does it as frequently or as effectively as you do as well. So firstly, what brought you to bring in humor to your meditations? And secondly, do other meditation practitioners look down on your humor bringing into it? Or do some people not connect with it as well? Because I connect with it very well. (laughs) So I'm intrigued about how it lands with others. Um, well, first of all, I think if God, so I can't remember who told this to me, but if, if everybody likes you, you've got a problem. Uh, if you're, if you're overly likable and pleasing everyone, then you're probably not really being yourself. So there's definitely people that dis dislike me and, uh, I hate it. Uh, we all hate it. Nobody likes being disliked. Oh, what I do. Ouch. Ouch. Don't do that. <laughs> but then I have to be honest, there are people I dislike. So let's be fair. There's this quote. It's easy to love everybody, but some people are really hard to like. 
uh, you know, just on a personality level. I, re- I remember I did a meditation and I made a lawyer joke. Oh, I got some hate from the lawyers. <laughs> and it was such a dad lawyer joke. Like it wasn't mean or harsh, but, and it kind of proved my point of, about lawyers in the joke. It was really funny to me. But yeah, so no, not everyone likes me or, or my style, but it works for enough folks. And yeah, I've just always, I, I take comedy classes. I love comedy so much. I, I only started taking classes actually in, since COVID. So, but I've been into comedy my whole life. And I just think it's a, well, one, it's a coping mechanism for pain. That's probably where comedy was born. And I'm Jewish and Jews, you know, thousands of years of suffering and complaining. Oh, the desert's hot. Ay, ay, ay. The bread isn't rising. We have to eat matzah. <laughs> it's like only us Jews, we eat instead of eating bread that we now can have, we still eat matzah from our painful days when we didn't have time to let the bread rise. <laughs> I don't get it. Man, I don't get it. It's like, but anyway, that's a whole nother topic. I think uh, comedy, you'll see a disproportionate, a disproportionate amount of comedians in the United States. Uh, they're Jewish. It's a weird phenomenon. But uh, I think in general, comedy was probably partially born out of a, a coping mechanism for pain. And you, that's fine, but you don't want to only use it that way. You don't want to use it as like a defense against being seen or, or being yourself or pain. It's also an art form. It's a beautiful way to explore our dark side it, without being violent. Express us human beings, you know, our, the way we're stupid and silly and weird and contradictory and all of the things. You know, it's a great way to pull out the dark side and point at it and explore it. It opens us up. And when we, like I was saying earlier, a lot of people, when they go to meditate, they're super serious. And that seriousness freezes whatever energy they actually came into meditation to release. It freezes the very thing they're trying to get to. Uh, So it's like, you know, when Homer Simpson chokes Bart, it's like, that's what we do to the energy we're trying to release. If I squeeze it harder, it's like this weird belief that if I squeeze it tighter and control it, I'll let it go. We all know holding something tight doesn't let it go, but that's what we do. So comedy helps kind of loosen our grip not take ourselves so seriously. And then we actually have an opportunity to look at something and then let it go. So a lot of meditation in the beginning is looking at something, letting go of pain, and then allowing what's underneath it to reveal itself. And there's this great quote I always share from Pema Chodron, the Buddhist monk. She says, our our neurosis and our wisdom are made of the same material. I think she's, she's right. So when we work through our pain, it transforms into something else. And uh, we need a sense of humor to be able to look at all of the human pain. Otherwise we drown in it. And that's no, and then the toilet is just always overflowing, like a perpetual repeating nightmare. Every morning, it's just overflowing again. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to keep revisiting that analogy today. <laughs> I have to pay my taxes. It's overflowing. The nanny's not here. It's overflowing. <laughs> I have to get to work. I don't have enough time. My friends are shitheads. You know, my partner's not listening <laughs> to me. It's just overflowing, overflowing. I need a plunger for my life to get all the shit out. <laughs> all right. I took it way too far. I had to. My comedy brain it wants to take it to the very end, cross the line. And it's just a thing I do. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman on a podcast recently. Great. And yeah, I remember Joe asking Lex about if he could 
uh, articulate himself better in Russian or in English. And he was just saying that in Russian, there's so it's so much easier for him to express himself in so much more depth because of the pain that they went through, right? And like in, in the Soviets and, but you know, all that pain and all that suffering, it just, it gave a greater meaning to all the words and to illustrate things. Whereas English is just like, painful suffer and but it's like in <laughs> russian you've got it's just so many different ways to express it so i think two things that came out of that was obviously humor and expression right but it might have come through the form of poetry as well yeah so my parents are from belarus russian was my first language and that pain so i'm jewish and russian combined so it's like twice the pain and uh even to this day my grandparents all they talk about is the holocaust you know over and over and uh, so I know it. I know it well, and I think that Lex is probably right. Also, cursing in Russian is really fun. <laughs> They're great. They're curse words, and just the way they flow, it's it's almost like a little French. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to go through some at the end if we've got some time for that. But coming into your backstory and hearing about your background, uh, just for those who have not maybe come across you and your work before, although I think we're getting to know you better and better as we speak, who is uh, David? Gandelman, and what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, when I find out who he is, I'll let you know. But <laughs> <laughs> when I look inside, it's an infinite abyss of darkness. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know if I could tell you who I am, but what I do is I spend a lot of my time creating content. So I have a meditation app, Meditation School, and so I make content for that. And I work with an app where you listen to me on called Insight Timer. They're great. Um, so I'll be constantly writing or recording courses. Uh, I teach live a couple times a month on Zoom. So I prepare for those and teach those. Uh, I have three podcasts. <laughs> so an interview one, a kind of a short form solo one and a sleep podcast. Um, so, I'll, so I'll be recording those. And uh, one day a week, I uh, see a couple of clients and I, I spend a lot of time kind of in the entrepreneurial realm as well. I have some people that work with me on my team and we're building out a relationship platform and app that we're just getting going and, and the meditation school app. It's kind of like a lot of balls in the air at once, which is fun. I really enjoy all the creativity and the movement. Uh, and I and I just wrote a book that just is coming out. So kind of all, and then retreats, you know, I do retreats and we have a foundation for kids, orphans in uh, Nepal. So all all the things, man. All all the things. Amazing. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, it's funny that you mentioned Elliot. that. <laughs> <laughs> It is funny that you mentioned that because if you were to put spiritual teacher and as I know you've described yourself before, a serial entrepreneur on each side of the spectrum, they would be on the opposite ends, I should imagine. How are you integrating both of those? Because you would expect a spiritual teacher to be out there in the Himalayas, as I'd like to dig into in just a second, not out in uh, you know Colorado building businesses and uh, yeah. working with people on a day-to-day basis. So talk to me more about how you're integrating the two. Well, I do. I mean, I did live in the Himalayas and I did do the ashram thing and I, and I do go there. Well, you know, I, I share this, some, this story sometimes. I interviewed this philosopher from India who has my favorite TED Talk ever. If you haven't seen it, it's called East First West. Let me see if I can say his name. Devdut Patanayak. I think I said it right. I'm that was good. And uh, he shares a story about Alexander the Great meeting a yogi. 
And then he, that actually happened historically. And then he fantasizes about what they talked about. And essentially the yogi sits and does nothing. And Alexander is trying to conquer the world. And they laugh at each other thinking the other is crazy for the way they approach life. So one is focusing on the internal and the other on, on the external. I think we all have Alexander and the yogi inside of us. We want to find enlightenment, sit still and have peace. And we also maybe want to create a business or build a, you know, have a family or be creative in some way, travel the world and experience life. So it's okay to have both impulses. And just like anything valuable in life, it usually takes some kind of integration to be able to accomplish that and, and find balance. So I experience one, one pulling me and then the other, and I try to get them to be friends as much as possible. And um, I'm always looking for that balance, always looking for to make sure I'm going inward enough and not avoiding the external world and also not just always doing the external world to avoid the internal world. I think they need to be in harmony. So they don't have to be in conflict, but they often are. I'm not going to pretend that's not true for most of us. But if we can find harmony between our inner and outer worlds, that's a great that's a great place to play. Do you feel harmony is going to look different for each different person? Because of course, there will be people just purely focusing on their internal world. And maybe there are people who are set to do that for the remainder of their days, but there'll be other people who are maybe more neglecting their internal and focusing on the external. So how do you find out what harmony looks like to you? Yeah, well, it definitely will look different to everybody, but I think the proof is in the pudding in how you feel. So I would engage it from looking at my life or anybody else's. If you look at Elon Musk, maybe that's his harmony of like working 100 hours a week. You know, everybody's kind of center point is different, uh, although I doubt it, <laughs> but it's what obviously makes him happy. So, yeah, it, it really depends. Some people are really good at like scheduling their time and structuring it. So this is my family hours. I heard someone say the other day, I can't remember who I was talking to. They were saying they made a commitment to be at home five days a week, uh, 20 days out of the month, uh, out of every month by 6 p.m. for dinner to be with their kids. And that was like their goal to find harmony between work and, and home life. I think it's helpful to set goals in that way and be very diligent to make sure you're not overlooking something and av or avoiding. Um, some of us, that means spending more time with our partner or spending more time on our business, or spending more time meditating. A lot of people avoid, I would say most people avoid the inner world by over-focusing on the outer world, but you know both can happen. So if you give your inner world 10 minutes a day, you know that that's going to reflect in your outer world when it is probably going to be a lack of depth, probably too much anxiety or control or perfectionism, a lack of an ability to kind of go with the flow. So It'll it'll show up if you're not if you're not paying enough attention on your inner world. It will show up. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'll come back to that in just a second, but I do want to take a step back to ask you about your first encounter with meditation. Was it something that you felt life was pulling you towards? Was it accidental? What did that look like for you? And what route did that eventually <clears throat> take you down? Yeah. So I was sixteen. My brother dragged me to the bookstore and I picked up Eckhart Tolle's Power Up Now. And that's that's how I started. So it wasn't a meditation in the kind of traditional sense where I closed my eyes. It was like I read Be in the Moment and not so lost in the future in the past. And I was just like, I had this kind of like awakening moment, like this realization, this aha, whatever you want to call it, epiphany. And it, I don't know how long it lasted, but it was like, it was pretty intense. 
And then I had a bunch of those moments in the preceding kind of following months and and then years, you know, and then eventually going to live in India and doing that whole thing, <laughs> you know, meditating with more structure. Uh, but there was a big gap in between. I I was in high school when this happened. So I was meditating all through college, but I don't think I got really kind of uh, serious into into it with structure until I, I lived in India. But, you know, when I was through high school and college, I read hundreds and hundreds of meditation books and spiritual growth books, and I was pretty obsessed. I didn't, I just didn't have a teacher or a, or a style. I was just kind of going with my own thing. Uh, you know, it was before YouTube, before podcasts, before any of that. So there was no teachers around on the East Coast of the United States where I grew up that I knew. So I was just on my own for years until I went to India. And, it's uh, quite a ballsy a, move yeah. to uh, go to India. What took you from just reading books in a library on your college dorm to India? That's quite, that's huge. I just have huge balls, Elliot. That's what, that's, <laughs> sorry, I had to, I apologize. Everyone, everyone listening that I just offended, I apologize. <laughs> and I did it. So, you know, it was just like a life dream of mine, man. It was a dream. I literally in high school, I would go on the internet, you know, when it was still kind of pretty slow dial up type. And, uh, I would look at ashrams online in India and I would salivate one day I'm going to go there and live in an ashram. I have no idea why I felt that way. My parents weren't into it at all uh, or anyone I knew. It was just, just came naturally to me. And so that was just like a life dream I had for years. I, uh, I taught English in Spain for a year and I was a party tour guide at night in Barcelona. So if uh, the thousands of people that went on my tours, if you were there and I got you wasted and I apologize, but I hope you had fun. And uh, they're like, the party guy is the guru teacher, dude. What? It's called transformation or something. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, after Spain, I went to Thailand for some months and then ended up, you know, I never, I don't think I ever told this. So I had a girlfriend from New Zealand in Thailand and we went to Laos and we were going to go to Cambodia. And, you know, I was just meditating one day on some river in Laos in the jungle. It was, we were in some crazy place and it just hit me like on my third eye, just like whack. It was just like, you have to go to India like now. And I told her I had to go to India alone and uh and she was not happy and i was like i'm sorry it's just what i feel like i have to do you know i was young so probably wasn't really ready for a relationship anyway and so i uh i took off to india i had a friend that was in an ashram in the himalayas and he told me i should come to where he was and i landed i you know got off the plane i spent a day in delhi i got on a bus five hour bus ride up to the himalayas to the base of the himalayas and it was a trip. It was it was quite a trip. I I was nervous and also super excited. And then I just I just kind of made my way. I remember the first thing when I got to the Himalayas, I was walking to the ashram. There were all of these what I thought were homeless people. They're we call them sadhus. They they do kind of live outside and many of them and they smoke charas is what they call it, like hash. And so they're stoned all day and they're like holy men, but really they're just like stoned a lot of them. And I just was like, whoa, and all these do wild dogs and monkeys and cows. And I was like, 
what is this place? <laughs> Holy shit. And the, you know, ashram had like a hole in the ground for a toilet and you had to like pour water down it. That's how you flush. And your shower was just a bucket of cold water. And I lived like that for a while. I spent a year overall in India. I had to go back to America a few times, get money and come back. And uh, so over a couple of years, I just kept going back and staying in the ashrams and studying. And I just absolutely loved it taught me a lot but you know it has its limitations as well like no one's teaching you how to have a career or a partnership or do anything other than do the inner work so there's a limitation in that and i think that's what was missing for me so i eventually left very interesting i wonder what yeah. kept bringing you back to the ashram i wonder what had you on that first day you're going to the bathroom in a hole you were showering with a bucket you're like i definitely want to keep coming back here yeah this is the best <laughs> who needs to be a party tour guide in spain surrounded by beautiful women from europe i want to i want to use a hole in the ground for a toilet shave my head and meditate all day <laughs> wait a minute what the hell was wrong with me elliot you're gonna have an intervention <laughs> i'm gonna have a breakdown on your podcast i made a mistake now the toilet's is really overflowing it was something so deep inside me i just had this like insane spiritual thirst and uh I, it was just so strong you know, probably the way when someone's like destined to, to be a musician or an artist or, you know, business, like they can just feel it in their bones, in their DNA, like this is my path. That That's how I felt all the time. So there was no rational reason for it. Yeah. Yeah, it was clearly more important than partying in Europe, <laughs> and I'm, which I'm happy about. Yeah. Yeah, I think you. I think you made the right bet there. I think you did. I did a good job of call, calling the right move. Uh, but on that note, you must have made the transition back into the Western world at some point. How was that? How was navigating going from somewhere so completely different to what we see on a day to day in the Western world to yeah making that transition? I didn't. So exactly, I kind of did, but. Uh... The short version is um, some witch in the Himalayas. <laughs> Just kidding. She's a friend of mine. She, uh, intuitive healer type of person, did, did like a session on me. And it was really powerful. I didn't know what it was, but it was like life-changing. And I was like, where did you learn how to do that magic, you witch? <laughs> and she, uh, she said, Hawaii. So I bought a plane ticket and I moved to Hawaii with no money. And I uh, spent seven years Those there big studying. balls coming out again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would probably call it more like ignorance and stupidity rather than like bravery. It was more of like that young, early 20s, whatever, I'll do whatever I feel like, you know, it'll work out vibe, which worked out. But honestly, I don't think I could do it again. I, I don't think I, I'd have it in me to do that all over so I'm happy I did it at the age I did. And uh, yeah, I, I hitchhiked out of the airport in Hawaii, you know, got picked up by a big Hawaiian dude drinking a Corona in the car with his kid in the backseat, dropped me off in a hostel, lived in a tent on a farm for months. And uh, I studied the kind of mystic healing arts in Hawaii for seven years. And I spent three years being the director of that school eventually. So that was kind of a great arc for me from student to teacher to director. And then uh, at a certain point, I decided I was tired of being poor because it was a nonprofit. And uh, I started reading entrepreneurship books and figuring out how I could create online, which is right when the thing was coming online, like right when YouTube and, and podcasts were kind of getting going more. 
it was it, the timing was right. And eventually I got onto Insight Timer. I moved to my brother's farm in New York and started building my own stuff. And then that's how it all kind of unfolded. It was a whole new arc of learning how to do what we're doing right now, you know, building podcasts and content and reaching people, which is most spiritual teachers or healers or coaches, you know, it's the hardest part for them because they, their, jo- their zone of genius is working with people. And, uh, and so they have a hard time. That's why there's so many coaches out there that coach coaches. <laughs> Are you a coach and you're having a hard time getting clients? Pay me <laughs> and I'll teach you how to get clients because they suck at at that part of the business. Healers are, yeah, they're all pretty bad at it. And so I actually, I love teaching entrepreneurship for coaches, healers, teachers. I'll probably do a program at some point next year. I have a free money course because that's a big part of it for a lot of people. So it's like an eight part free meditation series. I think it's called the energetics of money. I just released it. It's on my app in the free section. So that's part of your issue go sit and see if it helps. And if it doesn't, just send me a message. Hey, that sucked. And uh, I'll, you know, hold on to that comment for the rest of my life. I will send you a check through the post and tell you, hey, it works. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Yeah. I would like 10% of whatever you make. Coming on to your story, um, when we look at it from an objective standpoint, there's no way that anyone with, like, let's say you were designing the blueprint for your life and you were trying to be extremely analytical about it. There's no way you could have mapped out the way that things panned out. And it does sound like, I know that we spoke, we made jokes about all the different ways that got you there, but it's a lot of leaning into your intuition, right? And that's what you speak a lot about. It's just you know, leaning into your intuitive knowing. So do you feel like you are potentially unconsciously doing that? Or do you think that a lot of the deep work that you did led you to lead into your intuition? And do you think a lot more of us could benefit from getting out of our own way and doing that ourselves rather than trying to analyze our way through everything? Yeah, I think if you, and first of all, if you analyze your way through life, you're going to be miserable. I don't think some of the questions, like the deep questions in life, you can find the answers to in your analyzer. So when I watch like you know podcasts like Lex Friedman where he interviews mostly scientists, they they have amazing insights into life, but those insights wouldn't translate necessarily into is this my life partner? Who should I be when I grow up? What's life about? Who am I? Those are questions that you need an intuitive feel and you need to learn how to go inwards to find. So um, the tools that were taught in school, the intellectual tools that work so well to become engineers and, and teachers and business people, whatever it is, they don't work when it comes to making some of these big life decisions and understanding ourselves spiritually. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people hit a wall or hit a lot of confusion and get stuck. And even in, you know, I mean, psychology is a very intellectual or can be a very intellectual endeavor, endeavor, but it it's super helpful. But I've had also, I've had many psychologists and therapists as clients, students of mine who also get trapped in that intellect and can't seem to find their answers. So I think going inwards and using your intuition is as much a science as it is an art. There is a structure to it. There are tools you can learn. There's definitely a science to it. And uh, it's also an art. Uh, You got to be fluid and flexible and open and counterintuitive in the sense that the less you do and the more you could sit still, the more you kind of awaken to. 
So the rest of the world, the more I do, the more I get, the more I understand, the more I think, the more answers. In this realm, it's almost like inverse. It's like the more I sit still and accept, the more in me awakens and that intuition starts to rise to the surface. So when someone's like, David, what can I do to develop that intuition? First step is stop doing things. It's just chill the F out for a minute and meditate. And then there's some tools that we can start to learn when you quiet down to actually sharpen that intuition. And so part of that is feeling energy. Part of it maybe is seeing images in our mind's eye or seeing energy. Part of it may be hearing our inner voice. Part of it may be a knowingness. So just to give you a couple examples, someone says, I want to learn to Develop my intuition so I could have the wild ride David had, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend. It's, it might not be your ride. So I'm going to listen to my inner voice. And they close their eyes and all they hear is their dad, you know, criticizing them or their mother being worried or their ex telling them they suck or their ex-boss, whatever. And they're like, I don't hear an inner voice. I just hear a bunch of people criticizing me or a bunch of mental noise. Great. That's where we start. We got to reconcile those voices and find out who you really are and your own inner voice, which is probably quieter and and more gentle. Or, you know, I can't see the blueprint to my life. I can't see the image of who I want to be or what I want to create. When I close my eyes, I see all these other images from other people. All right. Well, your ability to see is probably an atrophy because everyone just gives you images from your phone, your TV, your computer. We're given images all day and night. It's a, an epidemic of image giving, <laughs> right? And the people who give the best images make the most money. So here's the Avengers. Here's two hours of images. I get billions of dollars. You, you spent two hours of your life receiving images and all right, now go be a superhero. Oh, wait, you don't have powers. <laughs> so uh, the image creators in our society are now becoming the ones that do the best right? YouTubers, film creators, how inspirational speakers, whatever it is, writers, you're creating these images for people. So what is it like to start creating images for yourself and seeing images for yourself? That's a great way to develop your intuitive abilities. To, and, and that takes a lot of work. You may have to sit in hours of meditation and therapy and coaching and healing and take all the images people gave you about who if they think you are who you're supposed to be, you might have to release those images and then allow the real ones to arise. And then maybe you'll have some clarity, right? Some people from a very early age, they have a one super clear image and it hovers around them for years. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, since he was like a kid, he always says he had this image of being a bodybuilder, right? Like very clear image that he was going to be the world's champion of bodybuilding. I think, he, I don't remember the age, you, you're into this work. So maybe, you know, it was like eight or nine years old, he had that image. Uh, and there are people like that. Their image is so clear and no one can stop it. And it comes true. And, but most of us, we're just not Arnold. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I've Unfortunately. seen you your shirt off. You're getting close. Uh, if you look at Elliot's Instagram, <laughs> you won't find any shirtless pictures on my Instagram, but, um, unless you want to see what it looks like when someone doesn't eat for a couple of years, <laughs> so, <laughs> a little thin, a little thin. So what maybe even as you're listening to this, like if there was one overarching image 
that you're looking to create in your life and you let it like arise in your mind's eye and maybe you dust it off and you, you know, if it's too close or too far away, you put it right in the right zone so you could see it and, and turn the light on. Like what, what would that image be? And can you let go of the invalidation or the fear around embracing that image and having the self-worth to create it? I think that's no matter what you're doing in life in some way, it's probably your life path is to find what that image is and birth it into form. So um, for me, one of those images was always writing books and that started birthing into form. Um, for me, it was, you know, teaching. So um, it's not like, no, we may not have just one. We may have two or three or five or may have one really big one. You know, some people it might be to have kids or to meet the right partner. You want to embrace whatever it is. And the more you embrace it, the more likely you're going to manifest that image into form, you know. That's uh, fascinating. And coming on to the portion of hearing the other voices and the images that people have placed on you, there's going to be a lot of difficult stuff for perhaps people to deal with as they go through that process of undust, like yeah, getting rid of the dust off that image. Where can people start if that perhaps what they're uncovering is incredibly painful? It's incredibly uncomfortable. How do they start working through the stuff that they perhaps don't want to see and they probably just want to put it back where where, where they found it and like yeah. forget they ever saw it? In the filing cabinet of mm. uh, all the times someone in- criticized me. Yeah. Well, I think you need a twofold approach. One is your personal meditation practice, which we can get into in your personal healing practice. And the other is you probably need a team. So there's that saying, the bigger the dream, the bigger the team. So if you have a massive ball of pain or trauma inside you or a bunch of them, then you may need therapists, healers, guides, coaches, friends, you know, whatever you can get your hands on to help. Don't be afraid to reach out and get all the help from every angle. There's no, none of us, none of us can do it ourselves. Uh, It's just not a real thing. We live in community as as beings, and so uh, I've never seen someone do it all themselves. So I attribute ninety five percent of my success to all of the amazing human beings that help help and have helped me along the way. So find that team. It's almost like I I see it as like a like a boardroom. Like if you were the chairman of a board of a company, who would be on your left and on your right and down the line, down the table and across the way. I, rem- I was physically sitting at a dinner table once and I was at the head of this of one side. There was a group of people on each side and then and then this very famous celebrity that I won't say on the other side. And he's a very inspirational person and he gave me like some of the best life advice ever that ended up, you know, turning into the book I wrote. And it was literally that like boardroom picture uh right there and it was so cool. So create that for yourself if you don't have it. And part of that is you being on other people's boards. So it can't all be about everyone being on your board. Otherwise, you just that all about you energy will drown you. So whose board are you on and how are you helping them heal and grow? That's a question I, I focus a lot on and it, get, it fuels me, kind of is one of my main f- kind of fuels in life is how can I contribute? So if you're not asking that, then you should start and get on a bunch of boards, get people on your board. If if no one's on your board, it's probably because you're not really showing up on, on the other people's boards or the right people's boards in the right way. Maybe you're just helping a bunch of selfish people. So you got to work that out. 
And and when it comes to actual kind of meditation tools, you know, working on yourself, um, I mean, that's like all the work that I do is helping people do that exact thing, that question. So I don't I don't know if I have one short answer, but generally speaking, what I do with my students is I help them close their eyes and learn to look at pain or confusion or doubt or fear and learn how to see it energetically, see it with their eyes closed, not just feel it, but see it. Like maybe it's a cloud of energy. Maybe it has a shape a color, a form, and then what's underneath it, what's animating it, what's giving it. It's it's like every energy needs a power. It has every form needs a power source of energy. So where's the fear getting its energy? And we start to explore that and, and, you know, kind of peel back the layers. And then, like I said earlier, our neurosis and our wisdom are made of the same material. So if I close my eyes and all I hear is my dad criticizing me, all right, so what's that energy? Let's call it invalidation. Criticism, invalidation. All right, I have this invalidating feeling and energy inside of me. All right, so let's start to reconcile that invalidation by looking at it and peeling the layers back and seeing why I care. All right, I care because I actually want this person's love and acceptance. So the the real pain is not the invalidation. It's the I'm not getting the love that I'm looking for from this person. So perhaps the solution is starting to find that love elsewhere whether obviously giving it to myself and surrounding myself with other people that can give me that validation and love in a healthy way. Not, I'm going to become a dictator. And if you don't love me, I'll kill you. Because that's like the dark side, right? That's like going all the way to the dark side. So how do we do it in an actual genuine, healthy way? Because we do need love as human beings. We need it the way we need oxygen and food for, you know, it's the oxygen and the food for the spirit. And that's kind of how, how I approach it with my students. And so maybe there's in layers of invalidation, of pain, of fear, of judgment, of confusion, of chaos, all, all of those things. And by reconciling each one, that's where we find our answers. It's almost like if you've ever played a video game and you like unlock something, da-da, you know, you get to the next level. It's like uh, you earn that. You get to keep it for the rest of your life, that that insight, and it integrates into you and it becomes who you are. So it's like you have these goals, but you may need to become the person you're meant to be to achieve those goals. And what you're doing is you're just trying to pull those goals in without changing as a person. But what actually happens is when you develop from the inside out, you grow into the goals and they almost become like an extension of you. They they attract to you the way a planet attracts and orbits around a sun. You have to build a certain level of gravity that emanates off of you by becoming who you're meant to be. So if the things that you're wanting to create aren't coming into form, it's probably because you haven't become the person that you're meant to become yet. And that's where you should be putting more of your focus. So if For example, if you're looking for a partner and you're having a hard time, maybe you're still working on some stuff inside yourself so you could attract that kind of person and show up. Because if you don't heal yourself, maybe they show up and you reject them or they reject you because you're not ready. So a lot of that, a lot of the work is on the inside. No one likes to do it or hear it, but it is what it is. I didn't make the rules. I'm just the one. (laughs) I won't even say it. No, I'm just the one with the powerful. testicles. <laughs> <laughs> this world has heard enough enough from people with balls, Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think in like a hundred years, we're just males. We're going to be like a secondary, you know, subspecies, just doing all the, all the grunt work. Most of my clients and students, for better or worse, are are women who uh, 
are really doing the work. And I, I'm just like, come on, guys, get in here, get in here, do the work. So I'm really happy that you're doing it and helping other people do it as well. I want to see a whole new wave of males, you know, finding a healthy sense of masculinity and, and growing and not being afraid to be vulnerable. And so they can, they can, you know, rise to their potential as well. So I hope that, I hope that next shift starts to happen soon. Yeah, I'd love to transition there next because I do believe based on what I can see and what I think the world can see full stop is that masculinity is in a very weird place at the moment. No one really knows where to go. If you're too traditionally masculine, it's toxic masculinity. If you're, you know, embracing vulnerability, then you're weak and you're this and this. If you're somewhere in the middle, you feel like you're in the right place, but you're almost too early to the party, right? It's like people, you're just the early adopters of this. So from that perspective, how do you believe a fully integrated male or yeah, fully integrated male looks like in this modern day and age? I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there. (laughs) Um, Maybe what are some of the key attributes to the the fully integrated male in the 21st century? Well, first of all, let me say what it's not, which is to be female. And I think that is a problem and that's happening, which is males are being like demasculated and they're they're just sometimes behaving in a very feminine way to be accepted. And they think that that's what the new masculine is. And actually the feminine might not be attracted to that because, and I want to preface by saying uh, every human being has masculine and feminine and some men are more feminine and some women are more masculine and vice versa. So by no means is it gender specific, but if you're a masculine male, like if you lean more masculine as a male and, and you want to be a healthy masculine male, let's go there so I don't offend anyone. <laughs> don't even mention, you can't even mention gender. <laughs> I would say that um, what, what does it look like to be vulnerable in, in a way that's, you know, still honors the masculine? And what I've noticed is and this is the masculine in any of us, men, male, female, the, the masculine can be direct in a healthy way. It can make decisions in a healthy way. It could have certainty in a healthy way. It could take action. Like now, you need act to take action now, right? I've worked with a lot of women in the relationship space and they'll often tell me, I want a, I want a guy who is confident and direct, can make decisions, not wait for me to make all the decisions, you know, to take action, sometimes to be kind and vulnerable and open and other times to tear my clothes off, right? So they're like, we want it all. So maybe that's part of it is, is kind of being it all uh, in, a, in a balanced, healthy way. Um, but not making decisions like you're dumb. Let me make the decisions. I'm the man. Not that, right? That's the toxic max masculine. Let me mansplain it to you. I know better. Um, but like a genuine certainty, a genuine connection and certainty to yourself. So what that looks like for each of us is different because we all have like a different recipe or balance of masculine and feminine. Like, I, I mean, you could tell I'm not like overly masculine. I do love playing ice hockey and fighting in that way and getting aggressive. You know, that is one way my masculine likes to come out. So it's, it's different for each of us. And, um, guys listening. Yeah. Most of us need to do a little 
bit of a better job being in touch with our feelings and expressing them and learning how to listen. Uh, really learning how to listen and uh, pay attention can be hard sometimes for the male masculines. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think a challenge is, is that it's where we've started, but it's also our starting point. And again, this is... Um, not to excuse our need to do the work, but all of our starting points is going to be completely different based on the conditioning that we have been imparted on from our parents, right? And, uh, you know, the certain mantras that we grew up with and everything along those lines. So I think it's just about assessing where you are and then how that reflects in the world. And then, as as you mentioned, then going inside and doing the work yourself. But it's it going to be challenging for a lot of people to do that when they don't even recognize that it's a problem in the first place, right? Yeah. And- I grew up exactly, and I grew up in a uh, house of immigrants. So the women's, you know, cook, and the men go out and make money, and then they bring. It's like hunting and gathering, right? I go hunt, you gather. <laughs> I hunt, you cook the food, the deer when I bring it back, or the bear, or whatever. And so there's probably some of that built into many of us in our cultures. I have no idea how much of it is physiological, evolutionary, and how much is how much of it is society and programming. You know, I have no clue. That's for the anthropologists and sociologists, psychologists to figure out. I have no no idea, but I can acknowledge that that exists and it's it's real. And I even feel it in my body sometimes. I'll feel that urge to, I want to go make all the money and provide the security. I was going to say in a, in a healthy relationship, I think that it invites either one. It doesn't matter on the gender, but one of the members of the relationship to lean into one of those energies and to almost be, you know, magnetizing to each other from the sense of one's really leaning into the masculine and one's leaning into the feminine. And it's a bit of a dance between the two, depending on what your strengths are. But I think a healthy relationship leans towards the need for you to go into that. And if you can find out what's deep within you, whether you do, and like I said, maybe there is, like you said, physiological side to that as well, because I certainly feel it too. And you're aware of it and it's not toxic and it's just something that you want to do, you want to provide and you know, you've know you given space for the other person to have the masculine energy at times. It can be a really harmonious synergy of energy, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And and I honor that in myself. I enjoy that feeling. You know, it gives, it, it, there's a sense of purpose, value, you know, I will build house now. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will go hit it's, animal with club and build house. <laughs> and speaking of, that transitions onto the next question that I have actually, which is, which is on ego, funnily enough. And I think, again, ego has probably got a bit of a, a difficult time at the moment knowing where it sits as well. You've got Ryan Holiday's ego is the enemy. And then you've got other people on the other hand saying, let me embrace my ego and let me understand it so I can leverage it and I can use it to my advantage in this modern world that we're living in, where do you stand on the ego? What do you think is the enemy? Do you think it's something that we can leverage or is it somewhere in the middle? Sure. Well, first, let me preface by saying whatever I say about the ego, I'm right about it. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's, the, that's the ego. <laughs> I'm right. That's, you always know when you're dealing with an ego, when it's telling you it's right. So, um, you know, there's a lot of definitions also for the ego and kind of the one that I look, the lens that I look at it through is more of like the Eckhart Tolle approach of a mental construct of who we believe we are, kind of like a mask or a whole set of masks, you know, roles that we play. 
And obviously you need to play roles in society. We're at a party. We all have names and biographies and we play these roles. That's not really the issue. The issue is identifying with that role and being it and not being able to detach from it and have space from it. So I, you know, I am my wealth. I am my looks. I am who my friends are, what my history is, how society sees me. All of those things, that's when you identify with that, that's where the issues start to really arise. And uh, is ego the enemy? I mean, that's a great book title, and I'm sure Ryan Holiday means something more nuanced. But in, in meditation, you don't want to make ego your enemy. That fuels it. That's like, that's like blowing air uh, onto a fire because ego functions many times for, with, from conflict of some kind. So um, you don't want to make it your enemy. You want to actually really become friends with it and see if you can give it love and then see what happens. So I wouldn't resist your ego. I don't think that's the path forward. Um, and also, if you had no ego, you yeah, you wouldn't really be able to function in life. So let your awareness passes through the ego out into the world and for most of us, that's kind of like a daily maintenance kind of thing is, you know, we either inflate or we deflate. I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. I'm so special. I'm a nobody. You know, we kind of, many of us oscillate from one to the other and finding, you know, when you do that, why you do that, what your triggers are, what the pain is behind it, whose validation you're looking for. I think all of that is really relevant to uh, managing your ego, you know, in a healthy way. I don't know if it ever fully transcends or goes away. If it does, I'll I'll let you know if it happens. <laughs> but it has. Yeah, it so I think you'll be one of the first to experience if it does. Yeah, there are moments where I identify with it and I lose myself, and then moments I come back. So um, I would say be gentle, and it's okay. It feeds off of conflict, internal or external. So if you're like ego is terrible, I have no ego. That's your ego talking, you know? I'm a spiritual teacher. I have no ego. I'm enlightened. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, that's like straight up the definition. You know what I mean? So <laughs> so it's a it's a very tricky, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. So when you meditate, we have our thoughts and we have our awareness. And meditation is about separating our conscious awareness from our thoughts and recognizing they're two different things. And once you do that, you no longer have to believe every thought you have and become every thought you have. That's really where you start transcending the ego when you stop believing all the thoughts that you have. Yeah, I, I definitely can ex, can resonate with that experience, especially from the sense of you can almost start playing with it then as well. You can almost be like, huh, you're funny, aren't you? Or like, yeah, that's, that's, that's nice. It's, that's cute, isn't it? You know, and whereas before it was the thing that was like ruining your day or bombarding you with all these horrendous thoughts. And then the other side, so you're like, oh, you're so cute. You can go back now. And then you just come back to, you know, the, the present moment, which I think is a beautiful aspect. So coming on to now that we've understood the difference between ourselves and our ego, we're starting to unravel all of these layers. The next step I would imagine is learning to trust our intuition. And I think that that's probably one of the hardest and maybe maybe not the final step, but one of the deepest steps down the line. So how do we start to trust our intuitive knowing and actually follow through with it? Because there's one thing to see it, but there's another thing to act on it. Well, it takes courage. It really does. And and a lack of self-worth. So sometimes we don't listen to it because we don't believe that we would have our answers. And that lack of belief in our 
selves and the lack of belief that I really do have my own answers is around usually around some kind of self-worth. And that's that separates the people who end up being happy and successful in life and the ones that don't. So you want to bridge that gap. There's this quote, cry me a tear, cry me a river of tears and then build a bridge and walk over it. <laughs> so when you're done emoting about how you don't love yourself, uh, start to start doing the work. And it's one thing to have an intuitive feeling or sense or image, and it's another thing to act on it. And most people, they have it and then they cover it up with doubt like a lot of thoughts of doubt. Like I, I had a friend once who she uh, got a divorce and it was really messy and she called me for some help and she was having a bit of a breakdown. And I said, when in your relationship did you know that it, he wasn't the right person? And she said, the day I met him. And I said, and what kept you from listening to that? And she was just like, you know, fear and over-intellectualizing things, trying to justify you know, on paper, he was right. And so the intuition was is there all the time. What we do is we cover it up and then out of fear and out of maybe other people's wanting to fulfill other people's expectations or, or be seen a certain way in the world, we override it. And so maybe a lot of, of the developing your intuition is uncovering the energy that's sitting on top of it, the avalanche of doubt and, and over-intellectualization and learning how to love yourself and be worthy of listening to that inner voice and then acting on it. And it's just like in fitness, it's a, it's a muscle. The more you work out, the stronger it gets. So every time you listen to your intuition and you take action on it, it gets bigger and stronger and louder. And if you do that again and again and again, it's going to be really hard for someone to come throw like a tornado of doubt at you and for you to accept it. So if you're weak in your intuitive listening, you know, somebody could walk over, I could, anybody could and say, hey, you know, that's probably the wrong decision. And then you listen or it throws you off. But if you're really grounded in it, the whole world, literally the whole world could be telling you you're wrong and you stick with it and you end up being right. So, and those challenges get bigger every time we cross a threshold. So <laughs> it's like you, you think, oh, but I already did it. Why, why is life throwing me a bigger one? That's just how it works, you know? Just um, leveling up. Yeah, just constantly leveling up. And that looks different for each of us. So I can't tell you what it looks like for you, but I can tell you if uh, you listen to everybody else and you hide behind some doubt or fear, that muscle is not going to grow and your life is not going to change. So start with small things and and go from there. Yeah. Mm. What do I intuitively want to have for dinner tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very careful about intuitive eating. And you know more about that than I do. If your stomach is full of sugar, you're going to intuitively want sugar. So you have to clean your system first. And it's the same thing for intuition for life. It's like to clean your head out of all, all the expectations out of your head and everyone else's emotions out of your body and your family's fear out of you. And then you can intuitively make decisions. But if you're, if you're covered by all that stuff, it's going to be hard. So it's, it's just like intuitive eating. Yeah. Yeah. In one of the last podcasts I had, I said that you can't maintain a dirty home. You have to do the deep clean first and then you can maintain, you know, the, the tidy home. If you don't do the deep clean, you're just maintaining a dirty house. <laughs> exactly. I think that's, that's a great way to put it. And that's why we have to meditate. And if you're just coming into meditation, a retreat can be really powerful because sit for a week and make some real deep progress and be around other meditators. Yeah. 
just going to wrap up on a couple of questions, but I do have one because this one has been on the forefront of my mind recently. And it's more of a thought as opposed to a direct question, but I'm interested to get your sentiments on this is, isn't it unfortunate that we have to go through, you know, maybe years, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, or maybe even an entire lifetime of uncovering all of this, you know, doubt, uh, conditioning and all this stuff to then tap into our intuitive selves. Isn't it a shame that we don't just get to be from our young selves? And I, yes, we are born that way, but somewhere along the way we lose it and we don't rediscover it until some point later in life or maybe never at all. So can you just give me your thoughts on that? Maybe you've got less of a cynical thought process on it than me. Yeah. Well, Earth is a school of hard knocks. It's a it's a tough school. And uh, on some level, maybe your soul chose to be on earth in this tough school. And there's some hidden mysterious reason behind it, but we all know adversity approached in the right way leads to growth. Um, what's the equation Ray Dalio always says, uh, pain plus reflection equals growth. So it's just the nature of growth. It tends to come from experiencing pain and suffering and, and wanting to come out of it. It's one way maybe evolution pushes us towards being better. Why that's the case, I think that may be an unsolvable question that uh, it's almost like the question, why does suffering exist? You know, philosophy 101, I remember in college, if God is all loving, why would he make you suffer? Uh, <laughs> and if he's all knowing, he already knew what you were going to do. So why go through the process? I think those are really deep mysteries that go beyond the mind that maybe in some deep meditation you can tap into a truth about. Um, but uh, I don't, I don't know why. I wish, I wish I did, Elliot. Other than it's here to help us grow and learn to love. So I think when we die, this is a, a guess that kind of the couple things that matter are like how much love did we experience and, and share, cultivate, and how much did we learn and grow? So how much did we love? How much did we grow? In, in that context, I think the suffering makes sense because it helps us recognize what's important to us and who's important and how we want to spend our time and who we want to become. It's almost like time. If there was no time, we wouldn't have a rush to get anything done or grow. We would just lounge. And that's kind of what it felt like in Hawaii for a while for me. <laughs> it's like, there's no time. It's the same weather every day of the year. It's perfect. Time stops. But with time, there's a pressure to develop. And maybe with suffering and pain, there's a pressure to develop and to love the people around us because we know we just don't have that much time with them. And uh, that's the best I can come up with. That's a pretty solid answer. I hope I can ask you in another five years' time and maybe we'll, we'll see if that's changed a little. I'll, I'll <laughs> say, Elliot, there's less time, bro. Love everyone. Hurry. <laughs> it's run, that shit is running out. Exactly. Well, that's what makes um, us define what's important, right? The fact that we only have a finite amount of time with unlimited opportunities, right? It really makes us have to, that's why the existential angst kind of sits within most of us until we define this is our life's purpose. This is what path that we need to go down. Because if not, we're just like, oh, we could be doing 10,000 other things. And we've got to pick, you know, X amount of things that we can only focus on during this time. But it forces us to choose. It really, truly forces us to choose. And I think that's a good insight. Yeah. Absolutely. And on that note, what impact do you want to have on the world, David? That's a great question. Uh, I hope, uh, you know, when I leave this planet, the impact that I had was uh, helping people release pain, 
you know, recognize who they really are, find some deep inner peace and maybe learn tools to help them find their own answers. Uh, Beyond that, I have no ideology, no dogma. I don't want you to come out listening to anything I say with any belief system. I think that's all a big waste of overflowing toilet time. Uh, (laughs) Why waste your life believing in things versus experiencing them and knowing them firsthand? So I have no overarching uh, dogma that I like want to lay out. I just want people to enjoy themselves and grow and heal and be happy and create with the short amount of time that they have. Uh, maybe that's too simple or, or practical, but that's just, it's just about it. Yeah. No, I think that's beautifully said. And for those who perhaps want to engage with your work, you have a book on the way. You've just launched your app. Tell people where they can find you and listen to some of your meditations, all the things you've got going on at the moment. Sure. Uh, so the, probably the best way to find me is just on my site, meditationschool.us, or you can download the app, Meditation School. And uh, the book is called The Seven Energies of the Soul. So it's on pre-order. Uh, it comes out 22222. <laughs> I think those are probably the best two ways to find me. Oh, actually, I'll just add, because this is really common. If you have trouble sleeping, I have a sleep podcast on all the channels called Grounded Sleep. So uh, usually that's a good way to start meditating is just by falling asleep, <laughs> listening. So that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. I can definitely vouch for the sleep podcast as well. But you've got to remember that there will be points in which you're, you're starting to drift off and then you'll hear something David says and you'll laugh and you'll wake yourself up <laughs> from what you've that heard. Does happen. I remember, yeah, there was one where you were talking about your friend who was the hockey player and you guys as kids and how he picked you up and put you in a bin. And I was just remember just bursting out laughing whilst closing my eyes and like, this is supposed to help me sleep. But no, it definitely yeah. uh, softens the tone if you're stiff around sleeping because of, and then, yeah, if you're awake by the end of it, which usually I'm not, then, you know, at least you're uh, still joyfully listening along. That was actually one of the great hockey players of the last decade who did that to me. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, his name's Ilya Kovalchuk, if you're a hockey fan and, uh, you know, won the gold medal for team Russia, all the, all the good things. Yeah. I beat him in a game of ping pong and he, uh, stuffed me into a garbage can. <laughs> uh, so that's why he's a champion. He's a competitive dude. And we're great friends after that. Yeah. <laughs> Not the traditional way of making friends, but it seems to work for you guys. But David, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Honestly, I have listened to your meditations probably almost every day for the last year or so, and they've been incredibly impactful. Like I said, I've I've laughed, I've been more grounded, I've cried, I've just about experienced every single emotion during them, and you know they've been incredibly impactful. So I just implore everyone who's listening to go check out your work and yeah, dive into your world a little bit deeper. But thank you so much for being here. Any closing words for the listeners? Well, for, thanks for having me, Elliot. And I mean, that means the world to me to hear that uh, my work has had such an impact. So that's just truly incredible. Uh, I would say, you know, if I didn't come out of my shell and share my work, Elliot wouldn't have gotten to hear it and experience it and shift his energy. And maybe it wouldn't have led to him helping you shift your energy in some way. And I think that's what life is. It's a network of us helping each other wake up and grow up and heal Uh, And so maybe you ask yourself how you're going to do that, what way you want to do that in the world for yourself and everyone else. That's, that's a question I like to ask and that's what fuels me. So thank you for sharing that. And yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you meditate and find your path and kick some ass. 
while you're on this planet. <laughs> David Gadamon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.